Hi Two Scientists listeners, it's Pambe here. Your co-producer David and I had the pleasure of visiting Canada last summer. There we spoke to MD, PhD, Dr. Julian Shui about his research in evolution and his experiences as the only Mandarin-speaking psychiatrist in Montreal. We had another technical glitch, but this time for the better, since we got some Game of Thrones bonus material from Julian. We hope you enjoy. This is your host, Panveer here, and today we're coming to you from Montreal in Canada. We're super excited to be here. Um, we're really glad to have the recommendation for today's guest from our friend, Artem Kachnashiv, who sadly can't be with us, but we're here to speak to his friend, Dr. Julian Shui. How are you? Fine, thank you. <laughs> That was a very brief intro. <laughs> thank you for dragging yourself out on a Sunday oh, morning when um, you... For free coffee and, and breakfast. Uh, I'm very pleased. <laughs> you're, you're a cheap date. <laughs> oh, dear. Is that what you're going to tell my wife now? That, that's how it's going to go, isn't it? Well, well, just keep this between us and how very many good. thousands of people listen to the podcast. Um, as we normally do with our guests, we like to get a bit of a background as mm. to how you got into your particular field of science. Now, I think, actually... You're not just a, a medical doctor, you're an MD-PhD. So yes. first of all, what kind of person goes into that? And yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> well, I have something to say about that. Uh, uh, so tell us how it is you got there, because... Yeah. So uh, it's very interesting. I mean, it's, uh, I think it's interesting anyway, because uh, I'm, I'm the son of an immigrant family. So everybody expected me to be a medical doctor from the very beginning. Oh, yes, <laughs> like, okay. Since I was like 10 years old. Uh, I literally, uh, like, I, 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 so in Quebec, there's a different system for medical school. You can go into medical school almost from high school. Mm -hmm. you, you can skip university. Yeah. So, uh, you know, parental pressures and all of that, I applied. And uh, I remember clearly to this day, and they were asking me, what would you do if you didn't get a med school? And I was like, I'm going to become a fine mathematician. <laughs> Okay. And uh, and it didn't take me. They decided that was not the. Uh, I, I don't think that was the right answer. You know, that was like you, you're supposed to love medicine. You're gonna try again, and this was gonna be devotion. Uh -huh. But I didn't have that sort of devotion uh, at that time, right? And so undergrad, I did a, a joint degree in math and biology, and I absolutely loved it. Uh, I mean, I think undergrad is when I really discovered learning for its own sake, uh -huh. and like like and how wonderful mathematical theory can be. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I did analysis, I did algebra, I did all of those, all, all, the, all the abstract stuff, right? And, and uh, absolutely adored it. Uh, I did the biology, I, you know, to this day, I'm not sure why. Uh, there's a little <laughs> bit of thing in me, it's like, maybe one day I need to, like, you know, like, get a really good job, whatever it is. Uh -huh. I just, just kept it there going. So, so I did the two degrees uh, in undergrad. And then uh, at the end of undergrad, uh, how should I put it? I really, really wanted to become a scientist, mm -hmm. uh, absolutely. But I had been, in, while through undergrad, I went through four or five different labs, and uh, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be in academia. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, my favorite supervisor, who ended up becoming my PhD supervisor later on, like, he probably gets in one day of full-time research a week, right? Mm. Like, I mean, the rest of his supervision, administration. And, and honestly, he gave me a device that, like, Julian, like, you know, if... Like, you know, it, it didn't look like I was going to thrive in the academic environment. Uh, so, so he was like, Julian, you might be a poor fit for the <laughs> academic environment. 
and uh, and I, I wasn't sure what to do. I took a year off mm-hmm. and uh, and I thought really hard about it. And then I went back to my parents like, this time I've made up my mind. I will do the MD yep. as long as I do the PhD with it. You uh-huh. know, as long as I try to get uh, uh, both roads in. So I was so ambivalent. You guys have no idea. I applied to all of like <laughs> one school. I applied to McGill and that's it. And if I didn't get in, I was like, I was going to like go work for like some video game company, like become a programmer or something, you know, uh-huh. like, it was so ambivalent. And so, uh, but, but McGill, for some reason, decided to take me. So I was like, I applied to one school, they took me, so, so now I have to go. <laughs> so, so that's how I ended up in the McGill MD PhD program. Have to say, the people that make up the program, bit of an odd bunch, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I, I sat on the admissions committee for the MD PhD after I completed oh, okay. the program. And uh, the main thing we look for in the program is no longer like intelligence or achievements and stuff like that. Everybody has that. If you're applying to this program, you're good enough to do well in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing we look for is how strong their commitment to science is. Because the attrition rate of the program is actually something like 60 to 70%. Oh, wow. So most people who get into the program don't complete it. Wow. They quit the PhD. Because mm-hmm. uh, you have the MD already. And they start looking at all their peers advancing on and getting good jobs and all of that stuff. And then, they, uh, and then they're like, I don't need a PhD. So they quit. So the attrition rate is really, really high. For example, in my year... Uh, we all completed it, but there was no MD-PhDs the year above us, and there's no MD-PhDs the year below us. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that in any cohort, if one person quits, the whole cohort goes. Oh, wow. It, because it shakes up the mindset of the whole cohort, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In my cohort, not a single person quit. Like, all five of us just hung on together to the very end. Oh, know? wow. So, so, was that then because you guys had a sense of community that maybe... We had, we had a sense or? of community, but it's also that... I think it was also individual decisions. Nobody quit, so nobody wanted to be the first one to quit. Yeah. But if somebody was the first one to quit, everybody else, so that's what happened in the years above and below me. Like mm-hmm. Once one person quits, the rest of us feel like, what am I doing here? This is so much ridiculous amount of yeah, work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if I'm frank about it, uh, grad school is harder than med school. Grad school is quite a bit harder than med school. Like, med school is a lot of work. But it's like you're in an elevator, you know? There's yeah. a ton of people with you in the elevator. There's forces pulling you up. <laughs> There's forces pushing you from the bottom, pushing you up. And you know exactly yeah. what to do. Uh, grad school is like rock climbing. Like, yeah. there's you and your muscles. Oh, wow. And, and there, there ain't anything else to push or pull you up. And you can just be climbing for a while and, like, all you've done is move horizontally, right? You, you, you didn't find the right path up. Yeah. And there isn't much of a safety harness, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so there's just some, and, and sometimes you hear, like, the screams of people as they fall <laughs> right next down, <laughs> right next, not next to you, right? This is an excellent, if horrifying, analogy. <laughs> and so after I did both, looking back, like, med school is more work, more hours. PhD way harder on the mind. So, so a lot of us end up quitting them. And so the people who end up like, like finishing it like are really committed to doing the research. Or else there's really no other reason to doing the PhD. So, so, so that's how I ended up here. Exactly. Very cool. When we were looking at your, your background, so your medical training is within psychiatry mm-hmm. and uh, your research is within evolution and complexity. Now, yeah. How does that happen, and is there any kind of link between the two areas? Oh, uh, I had I mean, this question I had to prepare for various interviews many, uh-huh. many times. But you know, the interview answer is what I actually think inside me, right? So, <laughs> so, I mean, how I got into it is purely by accident, right? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, 
why did I get him evolutionary biology? Like, now that I look back, there's a coherent narrative. But mm-hmm. when I was going through it, there wasn't. It was just one decision at a time, right? But, like, now I look back to it. Even when I was in high school, like, I'm, I was a huge reader of science fiction. My favorite books were Asimov books. Psychohistory, mm-hmm. Sidney Sheldon, all, all of that stuff. And I really wondered if there could be a theory of history. So, mm-hmm. when I was in high school, I was reading about statistical mechanics. You know, can you learn enough about human psychology to compress this all down? And then sort of renormalize them all into, like, some predictable theory of history, right? I mean, uh-huh. I was in high school. I had fanciful ideas. <laughs> And then I, I, I got into like undergrad and started doing real science. And I was like, there's no way. Uh, there's, you can't renormalize this stuff. Uh, it's highly, highly unpredictable. It's like basically the least linear system you've got. Because it's the smallest event can ratchet up to like large events, right? Huge events. So I was like, what's one place that they should be able to get a handle on this problem? And I thought it might be evolutionary biology. Because evolution is a highly historical science, right? You got dinosaurs, you got funny things happening, you got small events that ratchet up to giant events. So I was like, hmm, I'll give that a go. And so I, and I had a math background by then to actually do the work, you know? I have to say I was kind of disappointed. Because, like, evolutionary theory, if you boil it down, is not that different from physics theory. It's very applied physics-like uh, once you boil it down, you know? I mean, especially in ecology and evolution, the people who started it, like May and MacArthur, they were physicists, right? They were physicists from after the Second World War who decided physics wasn't their thing anymore and went into the biology. And so, but I came into it looking for a theory of history, a theory like, what's, what, what is history? Why is history different from ahistorical systems, right? Uh, you know, a cup of water, you leave it there for a year. And it's the same temperature. It doesn't matter where it started. It's trajectory independent, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but, but human history, biological history, obviously is not like that. It's highly path dependent uh, what its present status. So that is what I was uh, super interested in as my research problem. So that's how I got into the PhD. As for why I became a psychiatrist, it turns out like above all other things, I'm interested in theory. I'm, I'm a highly theoretical person. I would have made a terrible surgeon, honestly. And in, in psychiatry, it's, it's a highly theoretical discipline, right? You study Freud, you study all these... You know, you're not so sure if they're accurate, but they're certainly very, very interesting theoretical constructs, right? And so that's how I ended up in that medical field. Mm-hmm. And how best for connection... I'm not 100% sure. I'm still trying to figure it out. They're both very historical sciences. Uh-huh. I see the development of a single character, single personality through their lifetimes. And I see particular events in people's lives really affect who they are. Mm-hmm. And that's of enormous interest to me. Yeah. Uh, so, so I guess the one thing that links, to them, links the two together is like my personality. Uh-huh. <laughs> I really like both. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's not a tenuous link, I guess. Uh, to me, it doesn't feel like no. it. <laughs> Going back to your your research specifically, yes. so some of the examples that you gave when you, you told us about what you were doing in your email were really cool. This idea that evolution isn't necessarily going to be uh, something that can continually develop. You think that certain parts of it can get pushed into a certain direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a little bit more of a heterodox position these days. I mean, there's other evolutionary biologists who take it. Uh, but um, so, like, in, in 2007, I read this paper that I thought was absolutely brilliant. 
uh, I mean, I still I replicated it. Uh, it really struck me. It basically said that uh, there's just one trait, right? Mutation. So, so everybody knows evolution is about, uh, you know, you have certain variation created by mutation, and then you have natural selection on this variation, and that is how you get... Uh, you get evolution by natural selection. So one trait that every population has is their mutation rates. So mm. how fast do you change? And so how large do you create this variation, right? And so in, uh, in, in sexually mating animals, you could show that uh, mutation rates get pushed very, very low because, you know, uh, because of recombination. But that's a separate story. But this paper is really about uh, bacteria, so things without uh, sexual uh, reproduction. And it showed that in these uh, uh, populations, if you have no uh, if you have no recombination, if you have no mixing of genetic material between two organisms whatsoever, mutation rates just steadily increase, just steadily increase right up to infinity until you can have a mutational meltdown. And so, why is that? Well, the reason it's extremely interesting to me, it's extremely interesting because let's say you have a change in your environment, and it doesn't matter what the change in environment is, right? Uh, and then you have two groups, the ones with high mutation rates and the ones with low mutation rates. But which one of the groups is going to come up with a solution to this new environment? Mm -hmm. Well, the ones with high mutation rates, just because they create a lot more things, right? Mm -hmm. And then the, uh, the higher mutation rate hitchhikes with this to, uh, to fixation. And then in the multiple selective sweeps later, your mutation rate just increases, increases, increases. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and there's nothing really you can do. Uh, to stop this process. So I thought this was fascinating because it really switched the lens for me on evolution. Because evolution by natural selection, you're always looking at the environment. Did it get colder? Did it get warmer? Did it get more acidic? Mm -hmm. And that determines your, how you, you mutate, right? But here is an example of a, how one trait in evolution can steadily, regularly change. And you don't really have to think about the env environmental background. Mm -hmm. You merely have to think about what's going on inside this organism, right? Yep. So I replicated this paper and I extended this paper. Uh, uh, basically, I rescued the population. Like, I, I found a way to rescue the population from uh, this like mutational meltdown. I was like, mutational meltdowns don't really exist in nature. So how come this doesn't? So I extended. So basically, I realized like you know with chaperone proteins, with sort of heat shock proteins, sort of you can sort of put a damper on the system. But that's sort of my side sort of a work. My main insight came when I realized that maybe most traits are like mutation rates. Maybe most traits are not like what we regularly think of, like arm length or leg length. Maybe most traits are like mutation rates. And what's so special about mutation rates? that it makes, uh, lets it do this thing, uh, to ignore the environment, just increase. I realize it's because of this. It's because two creatures can have the exact same mutation rates mm -hmm. and actually be completely different. Be actually completely different. One might have like three arms, the other might have like six legs, and they have the same exact mutation rates. And then no matter what the, and, and, and like it, the, the environment changes. It doesn't matter if it changes, mix becomes hotter or becomes colder. The ones with the higher mutation rates become different organisms to adapt to this environment, right? Mm -hmm. So mutation rate is sort of a vague sort of a uh, trait. You're, even when your trait is determined, your actual phenotype is very widely open to interpretation. Mm -hmm. So I realized that a lot of the traits that we're actually very interested in are extremely vague. Yeah. Things like complexity, mm -hmm. things like intelligence, things like you know, hierarchies of organization. No matter how you measure complexity, two things can be equally complex mm -hmm. and be extraordinarily different in their actual phenotype. Yeah. Two things can be equally intelligent. Two people can be equally intelligent. We actually have completely different intelligences and completely different uh, phenotypes in every other way, right? Mm -hmm. 
for a vague trait like that, I realized uh, you really don't have to worry about the environment anymore. Yeah. Because the vagueness in the trait means you could have the exact same trait value mm -hmm. and be adaptable for a whole range of environments. And in that case, what happens is that you just have to see which one of these traits is more likely, just like mutation, uh, uh, more likely to come up with the, um, with the, uh, with the thing that is adaptive yeah. to the next environmental change, regardless of what that environmental change, uh, change is, right? And so uh, one, the easiest way to do it, the most blunt way of doing it, is just to have more of one than the other, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because if you have just have more of one, it's like going to a lottery. It might be a shitty lottery, but you buy 10,000 tickets, you're more likely to win it, right? Yep. And so that's one way to get a steady directional uh, change in one of these vaguer sorts of traits. Yep. And that just ignores the environment, which I thought was very, very interesting. But what the concrete example that I came up with, like how one specific example of how this might work in biological practice is the, uh, is the sort of like the, the prokaryote to eukaryote transition, the eukaryote to multicellular transition. Can you explain what these transitions yes. are? So, I mean, Sanath Mary and Myrna Smith, the major transitions of evolution, they were basically, you know, there was a couple major events that really determined how evolution was going to go, right? And they had a couple other things in there as well. Uh, they had the, the, the evolution of the germ cell in there, a couple other things. But one of the main types of events they documented was these transitions in uh, levels of hierarchy. Okay, so how did life first start, right? As far as we know, life started from an RNA molecule. Uh, that replicates itself. So basically, life started off as a rep molecule. And then later on, it became like a bag of molecules, a big bag of just everything jumbled together, and that's what we call a prokaryote. After that, what did a prokaryote do? Well, as far as we know, a big, big prokaryote, we call archaeobacteria, uh, swallowed another little prokaryote, <laughs> and uh, for some reason, did not digest it. And that little prokaryote became little things that help the bigger thing along, which we call, you know, mitochondria and stuff like that. And that's a transition to eukaryotism. So a big cell swallows little cell, becomes the eukaryote. And then eukaryotes, uh, six or seven times, depending on who you ask, uh, evolve multicellularity. So bunches of them come together and then stick around forever. Uh, and I was extraordinarily interested always in this process uh, because as far as we know, most animals get cancer. Not all animals die of cancer, but all animals, as far as we know, get cancer. Things like sharks get cancer. They just don't metastasize and don't die, you know? What's interesting is that no cancer cell ever just walks out back into the ocean and becomes mm -hmm. amoeba. Just swims off, does its own thing. <laughs> Never happens. So we know of no eukaryote that has an obligate multicellular ancestor. And to me, that's always fascinating. No prokaryote, as far as we know, ever had a eukaryote ancestor either. There were some lineages where the mitochondria lost its ability to make energy, mm -hmm. but no lineage of eukaryotes ever truly fully lost the mitochondria, all signatures of it. Never happened. And uh, these are sort of like highly irreversible steps in evolution. Mm -hmm. And so I was always wondered why so irreversible, you know? And now I had a theory obviously, of like this movement, a unidirectional movement in evolution. And I had a question. And obviously, the two are going to suit each other, right? Like, <laughs> there was no doubt in my mind. <laughs> and so I worked at it for like a year and just endlessly thinking about it. I think the two fits well together. It's up to the scientific community to decide whether or not they do, you know? Uh -huh. And so my thoughts are this. For example, when a big 
Uh, so let's take one particular transition as an example, the prokaryote to eukaryote transition. So I'm a big cell. I swallow a little cell. For some reason, I didn't digest this little cell. Let's attribute that one to luck. Because, you know, you swallow them mm. until one time, you don't digest them. So you have two major genomes now in the cell, right? Well, there are two types of mutations now. One type of mutation that mixes the two genomes together, and one type of mutation that separates the two genomes back apart after they're mixed together. Mm -hmm. Very straightforwardly, which was more common? The first one is by far more common, right? Mm -hmm. Not even they're not even remotely at the same orders of magnitude until they're actually well mixed already, right? Yep. And so, so consider now that you have two classes of organisms: one where the two genes are more mixed together, one where they're almost never mixed together. There are far more organisms of the first type than yeah. of the second type. This is a very, very vague trait. Two genomes can be equally well mixed together, and the organism has extraordinarily different phenotype, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they're to two totally different organisms, because what got mixed together, that's not determined. Yeah. So no matter how the environment changes, the next fittest organism is much more likely to come out of the mixed version than the non-mixed version. Mm -hmm. So regardless of how the environment changes, uh, the two genomes just gets more and more mixed together until the two of them are absolutely interlocked and cannot tear each other apart anymore. And so over evolutionary time, this dependence just increases further and further. And that is why you have this solid interdependence uh, and then evolution moves in this one direction mm -hmm. uh, regardless of background environmental change. Okay. So that's, that, that's how I think it happens. I have no idea if it's rather right or not. <laughs> So the more astute among you will have noticed the complete difference in sound quality and background noise. And that's because we had a minor disaster with our recording. But since Julian is such a lovely human, he's invited us to his home to, uh, to record the very last bit of the, the podcast again. So thank you, Julian. Well, you're very welcome. I'm very <laughs> glad to see you guys. So I think the point at which we stopped last time was uh, David asking you, what your techniques actually are for doing your science because for a biologist people imagine maybe cells in a dish or chemicals that they mix together what does a theoretician do so i've been thinking about this because you asked me that last time i had so much trouble with it so it's very nice to get a redo of this sort of thing you know <laughs> but i guess uh theoreticians especially mathematical theoreticians of any field don't work all that differently right I take a look at a system and I'm like, hmm, what are the salient features of the system? What are the dynamics? What are the parameters I'm interested in? And I try to, at least this is how I would begin, I would try to throw them into an equation where the, these parameters relate to each other in some way that other experts in my field would look at and be like, this is sort of reasonable. This is an okay sort of equation. We would expect this equation to describe the process under, except that I've rigged it, right? <laughs> uh, I've rigged this equation because I've worked it out in my head that I know this equation is going to come up with some unusual or unexpected outcome uh, if I push it to, to certain limits, right? Mm -hmm. And so I write down the equation. People are like, oh, that's sort of nice. And then I push it and push it and be like, bet you didn't see this one coming. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then that would be uh, the beginning of that process. Just push the equations through to the end to push it to the logical conclusion where people sort of fall, start with you and end in a, a place that's surprising to them and mm -hmm. that would be the interesting part but uh, because my work is biology because it's uh, it's a much more messier sort of a thing people mm -hmm. are always suspicious 
is this equation equivalent to the situation in uh, in question, right? And so to to sort of bridge it from the equation to the real world of cells and chemicals and all of that, I would build uh, simulations. Mm -hmm. uh, and these in these simulations, I usually build agent-based simulations. Either you know each uh, little thing would be like I would model either every atom, you know, what, what, every molecule that's going on, or every cell that's running around, mm -hmm. and then I would have the two cells interact in a sort of a way that people go again. Okay, this. I do think this is what happens sort of in real life between two actual cells. And then uh, I would run that simulation. Of course, I've rigged it a second time because I know this simulation is going to do something similar to what my equation was going to do. Mm -hmm. And then, but because people look at it and because there's norms of the field, they become, they hopefully become somewhat convinced or starting to be convinced that I've got something interesting going on there. That there's this simulation that to some degree represents reality and then you get an outcome of it uh, that's unusual. And, uh, and so that's most of what I do. I write down the equation, I write the simulation down. And he told me something so interesting last time that I just sort of always kept in mind that biology itself is very much of a simulation of the real thing, right? You know, mm -hmm. you, you take these dishes in, in vitro, these agar plates and whatever it is, they don't look anything like in vivo, but we have some suspicion that this is also what happens, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's many, many stages between the equation to what actually happens in the real world. Yep. And all of our different processes sort of just try to bridge that one to the next. Yeah. Uh, so, 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 yeah, so, so I, I take care of the first two little parts in the process. Very good. Um, so David says, we determined last time that there's not much connection between your research and your clinical work. Oh, yeah, dear. <laughs> it's but very does true. the fact that your first degree is maths impact the way you think and maybe work? Absolutely. So I'm a theoretician to the core. I mean, uh, if there's one ability I have that's relatively strong, it's the ability to pick up abstract concepts. Mm. Uh, the more abstract, the better. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm slightly allergic to data. You know, I hope no, none of my patients hear this, but. <laughs> But uh, it's, it's my character that unites the two, right? And so when I came into medicine, uh, psychiatry honestly had by far the best ideas. Mm. Uh, it had the deepest ideas. It had the longest reflection about human nature. Yeah. Uh, Freud was a very profound observer of human behavior. But what he's even better at is he takes these observations, just builds these mountains of, of fantastic theorizing, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes a little too quickly. But they're, they're ingenious insights. Uh, to, before him, people always thought that people knew, knew themselves people knew themselves best he discovers the idea of the subconsciousness he was like maybe we don't and, and out of that he builds this ridiculous layer of stuff and uh, I found that incredibly attractive and I mm -hmm. found myself being go reasonably good at it being able to grasp these abstractions quickly and so, so if there's a link between the two it's basically who I am mm -hmm. yeah so we discussed a little bit last time the fact that you are essentially only doing maybe three hours a day that you dedicate to the research mm -hmm. and the rest is then for the clinical work yes yes can you tell us a bit about what you're currently doing because you're you're setting up a new clinic yes 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 uh so currently doing in terms of clinical work yeah. or in terms of okay so uh so uh all over north america but Actually, not so much, but certainly all over Canada, there is a steady uh, privatization of uh, of health, 
and uh, so people are trying to push as much care outside of the hospitals as possible. Uh, it turns out it sort of makes sense because hospital care is extremely expensive, so they're trying to go into the community, doctors mm-hmm. and offices, uh, to use that sort of a model uh, to take up as many patients as possible because then I pay my own rent, I take care of my own office, and all of that is out of the government's hands, making it cheaper for everyone. Uh, it does certainly have its drawbacks. For example, uh, me in my private office uh, would, at least from a financial point of view, prefer to see better patients, as mm-hmm. in that they are less sick because they show up. Yep. Uh, but in psychiatry, uh, not showing up is almost part of the illness, right? Yep. Uh, and so you can't blame patients for not showing up. If they're too depressed, they can't get out of the house. Uh-huh. But in, if I am just looking out for my financial gain, these are the patients I don't want to take into practice. Mm-hmm. And so there's a bit of a cherry picking that can go on in private practice. That means the sickest patients are, are not getting taken care of. So that's always been the debate in the province. Mm-hmm. So McGill has been trying to push psychiatry to uh, create a private office, to have a private branch of psychiatry. Of psychiatry, so this is what I'm, for all its ethical sort of ambivalences, uh, I'm trying to work on. Mm-hmm. So I'm heading up the uh, what's called the McGill Psychiatry Community Clinic. Mm-hmm. So it's still be academic side. Students will come through, residents will come through. I see patients. It's free for patients. Yeah. I uh, I build the government still, mm-hmm. and so we're trying to see how best we can uh, make that work in yeah. as ethical a manner uh, as as we can do it. So that's yeah. my main sort of project these days. Okay. And we also discovered, interestingly, that you are potentially the only Mandarin-speaking psychiatrist in Montreal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I am that. Lots of uh, Mandarin-speaking doctors. Chinese people do become doctors in great numbers. Uh, <laughs> we just don't become psychiatrists. It's, uh, there are a few in Toronto, but even there, the population is very underserved. Mm-hmm. So even residency, I saw a lot of very sick people from, you know, from my own sort of background. And it really, it's very touching for me, right? These are people I feel I can do a special bit extra for. Mm-hmm. Because really, there's no one else who's going to take care of them. So yeah, I, uh, so so uh, I I am the only psych- uh, Mandarin-speaking psychiatrist in Montreal, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm really trying to hard to establish an informal network of Mandarin-speaking family doctors, Mandarin-speaking uh, psychologists, therapists, mm. and an informal network. Uh, I just re- got through to one this weekend. Uh, the weekend that just passed, and hopefully we can get something going. Sort of an informal team can refer back and forth and start taking care of this uh, population. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because we also talked about how uh, we think that probably Asian people in general have a similar stigma yeah, attached to mental yeah, health yeah, and yeah, illness. Yeah. Yeah, and they're very bad at getting treatment like that for things like that. Oh, I have a. I mean, it can be so in the original cultures that like I came from, at least you know, somebody gets depressed, somebody gets super anxious. There's a person, the entire like family descends on them. You know, they're seventh level ants. You know, there's there's an entire clan dedicated to like solving mm-hmm. problems for good or for ill. Often for <laughs> ill, it's absolutely true. But that's the traditional way of having dealing with with this sort of thing, right? And then they come to North America and they're completely plucked away from their context. Mm-hmm. And so all of those original strategies and mechanisms fall away. And they're, 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 the, the family is not in homeostasis, right? The family is, is ripped out. And then to access public services that we have here, to spill all of your life to a stranger, that's uh-huh. it's very unusual. It's, we're basically the only culture who ever dis- decided that this was the way to go, right? Instead of keeping it within a very small, tight-knit cohort, right? Yeah. And and so it's not surprising that they have such difficulty using our services and how alien our ways of managing emotions and feelings must be mm-hmm. to them. So they come here and, and they're distraught and there's, there's nothing they can turn to for help, right? Mm. And so that, in that way, I do feel uh, I can be helpful. 
Yeah, so I know for sure. My parents, they're, they're family practitioner. They've had the same clinic for the last 30, 40 years. Mm. And they go there because the person has an Indian background and they feel like oh, they, yes. they understand their culture, their language and so on. And it, it feels like that's something that's really important to getting treatment. There, it is. It is it, it, definitely. It's very interesting. There are definitely Mandarin-speaking patients who do not want to see me. Uh, there's 60,000 Chinese people in Quebec, in Montreal. Uh, I think that's actually Quebec. And that's not a whole lot. It's a mm-hmm. very, very small network. I, I end up knowing somebody that my patients know, you know. And so sometimes they don't, uh, they don't like it. And most of them do, though, and it's very interesting because for some of the patients, for example, uh, I speak to them in English, mm-hmm. and all I think is that uh, they're they're depressed, they're yep. they're very unhappy. Then I speak to them in Chinese, and all these sort of things uh, come out, right? And they start t- telling me really what's on their mind, and I I establish a diagnosis of schizophrenia or something else, right? And it's because when they're speaking English, they're putting so much cognitive effort mm. into the talking that they're engaging their brains much much more, and they can't relax and really tell me about their emotional state, which a lot of my diagnosis depends upon. So yeah. depending on the uh, the language that they they use, uh, the clinical outcome uh, will be a uh, very different that's intense though to think that you know potentially a whole cohort of people are not getting treatment because we're getting the wrong treatment because of the diagnosis and and all of that you know mental health is such a westernized it's so rooted in a particular history Mm. that's stretching out to other society and cultures it's very challenging. I, I work at the Transcultural Clinic at uh, McGill, and uh, was one of the leaders in this. It's one of the interesting things I've done. And uh, have to say, every culture has its usually often very powerful means of regulating mm. feelings, usually through its religious practices, usually through these giant communities. Mm. Uh, and here we don't have any of those. It's yeah. a very hard transition to modernity. Yeah. So David wanted to go full circle with his question before. And he says, as a psychiatrist, what do you make of mathematicians? How representative of they oh, of the wonderful. population at last? That's a wonderful question. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I undergrad, I grew up with mathematicians. I love them. They're just such adorable people. And I was really <laughs> one of them, right? Uh, mathematicians have this naive quality uh, of, I mean, they're the greatest romantics in the world. People think mathematicians are logicians. They are the furthest thing, right? They have this faith in, in, in the beauty and the, 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 like the goodness that everything's going to have a structure at the end of the day. And they just charge in with that sort of thing, right? I mean, when Godot took a part of that down, like, it must have been devastating to Hilbert and all the rest. You know? Their foundational psychological structure must have been shaken. <laughs> And so I absolutely adored the, the mathematicians I, 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 grew, I like grew up with, almost the undergrad. Uh, and, uh, and the trouble with mathematicians is that the one who actually become mathematicians, they're so ridiculously good at this one particular thing. Mm-hmm. Their world is, can get a little bit narrower depending on which mathematician you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but it's because uh, all the energies they've come. This is such a difficult and... Uh, and esoteric pursuit you don't you don't have a huge community when you do this it's only other mathematicians Mm -hmm. that the practice of it also structures their character yeah yeah absolutely but 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 they're fantastic people very cool but i imagine anyone with a phd like any community the psychedelic community you have the same issues 
it's a little bit different, right? I, I, I did my PhD in the Department of Biology. I mean, it's for theoretical biology, but mm-hmm. I ended up getting my degree in biology. Biologists do a lot more like, for example, they have to, public outreach. Mm-hmm. P- public is often very interested in biology. Uh, and then the, uh, most biologists these days are engaged in environmentalism of one sort or another. So the work is... You know, from a mathematician's point of view, much less pure, yep. right? And much more contaminated with the world. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, no mathematician ever has to stand up and give a defense of group theory, right? Like, but ma- evolution and biologists are constantly having to defend natural selection as the major, mm-hmm. and that restructures character. So biologists turn out to be quite different people. Mm-hmm. The things that you do day to day change your emotional habits. And so, so there's a lot of that. Yeah. So another thing, this is quite separate from your life as a scientist, we were talking about how you went back to visit China for a year and uh, we had a a short discussion about cultural differences and how they can spot that both of us are from... Oh yes, from far away. We're not from our kind of primary cultures. Yeah, so, so, uh, you know, I've always been very Chinese. I eat very Chinese, I speak very Chinese, I read a lot of Chinese books. And I uh, went back to China for a year after my undergrad. I've never felt more Canadian in my life, right? <laughs> and so I realized when, like, really, like, push comes to shove, like, when I'm really made to make an instantaneous call, like, I'm a creature of the Enlightenment, right? <laughs> I believe in science and reason and all these strange things. Like, I believe in democracy and, like, the people I met in China, like, at a fun, I, mean, I can raise all sorts of arguments against democracy, but I realized my instinctive reaction, uh, that's where it goes to. Mm-hmm. And then I was in China, and people's instinctive reactions are very different from mine to, to the world, to the news, to events, to life events, you know? And also, I mean, I speak Mandarin without any accent, so they can't immediately pick me up like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a taxi driver finally ended up being able to pick me up because he just realized I had too much facial expression. <laughs> I just had too much intonation in my speech and I, I waved my hands up and down, right? <laughs> and, and no self-respecting Chinese person would do that. It, it's just not, <laughs> it's not, it's not done. It's not proper. Uh, and for example, also I would go back to my home village and I'd just be pleased and thank you all the time in impeccable Mandarin. Uh-huh. But I put off my aunt tremendously and she, at one point she was like, Julian, you've got to stop doing this. You're treating us like strangers. Like we're supposed to do all of this for you the more that you do this we feel like outsiders you know yeah. and you, you, you've got to stop <laughs> and I found it so difficult stopping like it, was, I, it just it became a mumble just because oh, I couldn't God, say yeah. it out loud right yeah, and yeah. so so these differences really doing going very deeply oh yeah exactly. exactly it's the same for me as a Brit when I first started learning Spanish and I went over there and I got to the point where I could converse and Everybody's like, what's, what's with all the please and the thank you? It's like, we don't use either of those words very often. Like, like, okay. When you mean, you use it, you've really got to mean it. It's got to be a situation, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Absolutely. That's it. That's yeah. it. Like, that's like it. there's no situation. Like, that, was there a situation? Yes. Right? That was the big difference. Exactly. Yeah. I, I love all these cultural stories. Ah, yes. Kind of clashes between people. Um, but yes, <laughs> the, <laughs> one of the things we noticed was we came into your house was that you have a big Game of Thrones game oh, oh dear. on your table. <laughs> and this got the discussion going about the, the TV series. Now, everybody, I'm sure they'll, everybody's got their own viewpoint as to how the whole thing turned out. We're not going to put in any spoilers, except for the fact that one of the things that really annoyed you is the final situation with Daenerys. Oh, dear. Reason being... There was no build-up to it. You know, GRM might meant for whatever happened, happened. Uh, but you've, I mean, a character, uh, 
I mean, evolution has a reason. I mean, the, and the other thing I'm so interested in psychiatry is that I see evolution on the level of individual. I love studying character change, the small events that open up you know, huge changes later on in people's lives. Mm-hmm. The same way that small mutations that alter entire evolutionary trajectories, right? The way that people find new innovation. Uh, and so, so I'm most interested foundational as a scientist in historical processes, right? Mm-hmm. In evolution as a historical discipline, uh, not its physics aspect, but its historical aspects uh and so same thing with cultural history but same thing with character and so uh when character is believable you look at this process and you see every single thread just riding through and coming to their full fruition that's what people mean by poetic justice right Mm -hmm. you read Tolstoy and he just lays he just dissects these characters for you here's the here's the liver here's the here's the stomach beautifully dissected and then all the nerves and you know exactly how they run and the person just makes perfect sense right and so GRM is capable of the same thing at least in the first couple of his books you know he's I really see the fleshing out of Jon Snow as a character right and so when somebody does something wrong with a character that has (laughs) so much potential and just breaks that strand of history i get i get very angry <laughs> so much waste you know it's it's like it's like it's almost like a revolution coming from the outside into a nation you know, yes. an external external sort of invasion just wiping out the local history and what it could have been mm-hmm. i'm just looking at that and i feel like i feel like assaulted you know i feel yeah. the character got assaulted and so so i have to say i did not enjoy that last season the, the character just made me ah oh, like not up inside it could have gone that way mm-hmm. but it needed a particular history to do so mm-hmm. and yeah. from a clinical point of view like it doesn't even seem that Daenerys's character... It did not make sense. No. It, there's no lead-up to it. There is a natural history to any psychiatric illness. And, and this breaks all the patterns. <laughs> if it can't make sense of something, I get very upset. <laughs> Outrageous. So there you go. Even from a scientific perspective, that last season was crap. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, dear. Yes. No, there are a lot of very upset people. Yeah, I, I understand. Writing, so. Um, so, yes, on that on that note, while we're, we're wrapping up with the the terribleness of Game of Thrones. We'll also wrap up with this podcast, which has been immense fun. And we, we thank you so much for speaking to us for a second time, given our our personal technical glitches. Well, thank you so very much. It was very, very fun. I, I like talking about myself, in case you guys haven't noticed. I'm <laughs> <laughs> oh, glad to hear it. Yeah, this was this was back when I wasn't 100% sure what I was going to pursue. I did, I did I worked in five different labs in undergrad, including even like microbiology, which I would never ever do again, you know. I spent like 5 months in that lab and at the end I was going to like break a pipette over my knees, you know, because I'd be at the 56th little well and somebody would call my name and from 56 to 72 it, it just completely utterly finished. And I remember at one point I had just been working and uh and all my PCR started having this gigantic band near the top, right? And everybody who, who knows what they're doing knows what it's about, but I didn't. So I just kept on going. And, I, and it turns out the primer that I had contaminated my regions with, I just like 
spread it out through the labs until that band started showing up on other people's PCRs like infectious disease. And, and I, my, my supervisor, when he found out, was so kind to me. But I, that thing cost him far more money that year than anything he ever paid me. And that was at that point I was like, I am definitely a theoretician. I am much, much better programming the computer than, than doing any of this. So that was, you know, a career-defining moment for me. Coffee and cake for this episode were enjoyed at the very lovely September Surf Cafe. The bluesy rock you're enjoying right now comes from Mountain Dust, Montreal locals and friends of our guest Julian Trey. We highly recommend you look them up on Bandcamp or Spotify. We'll also add links in our show notes on our website, twoscientists.org. Hello. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Our mathematician knows how to count up to two. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <laughs> At least. At there least. we go.